Um, of course, you heard the text already, and of course, the title is The Triumph of Christ, but in light of uh, recent events and a lot of rhetoric that's being out there on the internet and on news media, I want to make one thing certainly clear. No one took the life of Christ. He laid it down willingly. And I'll return your attention to John chapter 10, starting in verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, which are not on this of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Like I said, in light of some things that have been said, I just want you to know very clearly Christ was crucified, but he went there willingly, silent as a slam led to slaughter. The triumph of Christ. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, and i like to begin by turning your attention to George Barna, one of his polls entitled, The Christian Church is Seriously Messed Up, and this is from August the 12th, 2020. Basically, that survey showed us, or the results of it says this. This is the question that they asked. Can one qualify for heaven by being good or doing good? In other words, can you kind of work your way into heaven by good works? Well, 41% of professing evangelicals and 77% of Roman Catholics said, yes, you can get there simply by being good. Now, the reality is this should not surprise us to some degree, but it should be of some concern. Because many see Jesus as just a simple, wise, ethical mentor, or a meek and mild servant. And many don't take Jesus seriously, even Christians. We can be soothed or lulled to sleep by the spirit of this age. But look in verse 16 of our text this morning. It says, he has a name written, King of Kings. Lord of Lords. So my question to myself and to you, do we really believe this? Now back in ancient times, there was no separation from believing and then doing. So if you said, I believe in Jesus, there would be ethics, behavior that would back that up. But here in America, we've done a great job of divorcing belief from action. People will tell you they believe in God all day long, but do they back it up by what they do? 
what they practice. So if we believe it, how does it impact our life? Now, bear with me. I want to quote a justice of the United States Supreme Court, Horace Gray. He served on the Supreme Court between 1881 and 1902. And he had a man stand uh, in front of him one day who escaped conviction in the lower courts by some small technology. This is what Justice Gray told this man, quote, I know that you are guilty and you know it. I wish you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge and that there you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to law, end of quote. We shall all remind ourselves that one day we'll stand before him and have to give an account of how we lived our lives. We often neglect the power the beauty and the glory of our great God and Savior. Revelation chapter 19 is intended to magnify Christ in our eyes. It's intended to astonish us with his majesty and authority. A text like this should act as a smelling salt to awaken us from spiritual drowsiness. Now, you know what's going on in Israel right now? You've seen the news. All I will simply say is I believe God is moving all the pieces in place and the end is even drawing nearer as I speak to you. We should be concerned about this, not for our own safety and concern. If you're a Christian, nothing can take your salvation away from you, but there's many more that need to hear. With that said... I think it's only fitting that we're here in the text this morning because in verse 11, John says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. Now the horse's color being white represents purity or victory because the rider on the horse is holy and goes forth to be the triumphant conqueror. Now when Roman generals entered the city of Rome after conquering a city, They rode in a chariot pulled by white horses. And therefore, the title of the message is the triumph of Christ. So what I'm going to do now is paint a picture of what happened in Rome in ancient times when the general came back from being triumphant, and then we're going to look at Christ coming back. You realize Christ has not been coming back to take sides. He's not going to fly with America or Israel, white or black. He's coming as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he'll set up his kingdom for the middle of the reign that will last for a thousand years. He's coming back in a whole different way than when he first came to this earth. So with that said, you look at the Roman triumph. That was a quintessential celebration of Roman strength and empire one of ancient Rome's most civic and sacred institutions. It was a spectacular procession, a celebration of Rome's military victories, its courage of its soldiers, and favor of the gods. One of the highest honors a person could receive is to be called the triumphant. A lavish parade of prisoners and captives' treasures will make their way through the streets. And this would guarantee the eternal flame of the conquering general. So 
Put in your mind a picture of like a ticket tape parade. Maybe in New York after World War II when people were just celebrating the end of the war. Put that in your mind. And as a general comes back from being conquering all the cities, all the celebration that would take place, people yelling and cheering, look how mighty we are, look how strong we are, and they would cry up triumphant to that general. That's the picture of ancient Rome. But now we see Jesus coming back on a white horse as triumphant conqueror. Look what it says in verse 11 again. He who sat on it is called faithful and true. Now back in chapter 3 of verse 14, in the church to the letter of Laodicea, Jesus refers to himself as the faithful and true witness. He now appears as the faithful and true judge. Consequently, look back in verse 11. It tells us in righteousness, he judges and rages war. In verse 12, gives us more description. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. This description is to heighten our sense of justice and irresistible power and authority of Christ. Eyes like a flame of fire, not only judgment, but also penetrating knowledge. You have to understand, I have to understand, there are no secrets that Christ does not see. Let me repeat that. You can do nothing in the dark that Christ does not see. There is no lewd thought, no unbelieving sexism that Christ does not see, no hypocrisy, deceit that he does not see. Just like as a man reads a book, as you pick up your book, your Bible, or hymnal, every you're reading, as soon as you see that, plain as you see that, that's what he sees inside your mind and inside your heart. I'm reminded of Psalm 139, verses 1 and following. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even now, he knows what's in your mind. Example, what would you do right now this screen went blank and it had your name and exactly what you're thinking in this moment come up on that screen? Would you be embarrassed? I wish Tim would be hurry up. I'm hungry. I want to go to lunch. It's a little hot in here. Call me. What would be up there? He has that knowledge of you and me. His, aim, his eyes are a flame of fire, that penetrating knowledge that he has. And he is crowned with multiple diadems as indicating that he has supreme authority. And verse 12 tells us he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Now whatever is known of him by revelation does not exhaust his, ex his essence. Although he may be known, he remains the unknowable one. And though, though he's the unknowable one, he makes himself known. That sounds like a love of double talk. But let me tell you, God has only revealed what he wants us to know. We don't know everything about God. I don't know everything about God. If I did or could, he would cease to be God. God has talked to us in a way that we can understand. We're trying to understand an infinite God that transcends our understanding and our time by our finite little human mind, we cannot do it. 
It reminds me back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Oh, Moses, I can identify with Moses. He's making every excuse in the book not to go back to Egypt. Remember, he killed that Egyptian. He ran out of there, scared for his life, and he, he meets his future wife, and he's living this calm life. He goes out with the sheep, and he hears a voice going, Moses, Moses. And he finds this burning bush, and God speaks to him. And Moses makes every excuse. That, that, that uh, discourse that takes place, Moses says, I, I can't speak. <laughs> and God replies, well, who do you think made God's mouth? I mean, who do you think made your mouth able to do you speak? I'll give you the words. But then Moses asks him a question. Who should I say sent me? In other words, God, what is your name? Now, up here on the screen, you'll see it. In our English translations, it says two words, I am. There it is, Y-H-W-H. That's most of the time you hear it pronounced Yahweh. But you know what? No one really knows how to actually say that name. The ancient Israelites would never say the name of God because they don't want to profane his name. And they will not say it, even to this day. But that's actually how it falls. If you translate the Hebrew into English, that's what you find. And the very fact that no one knows exactly how to pronounce it is a reminder of God's transcendence over all human knowledge. In fact, when you see that reference in your hymnal or Bible, I am is a reference to God. In fact, Jesus makes reference to I am, and everybody in that crowd would know that he is identifying himself with God. Once again, God's knowledge, his ways are far above our ways. He does things that we can't even understand. He hasn't told us everything. If he did, I think my head would explode. I couldn't handle it all. I have a hard time understanding the concept of eternity because everything on earth has a beginning and an end. Can you really understand forever and ever and ever and ever? There's many things I can't comprehend, but that is where faith comes in. Because faith tells me, yes, I believe it, although I don't understand everything about it, but I know it to be true because God said it. I take him on faith. See, human reason will get you so far, but it still takes that element of faith to step out there and say, yes, God, I believe who you are, who you say you are. It says in verse 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped or stained in blood. This represents the blood of his enemies because the circumstance here or the context here involves judgment. The Lord is not coming as redeemer this time. He's not coming here to save but to judge. And the judgment of Christ will be exercised to the full. Look down in verse 15. I'm skipping a little bit ahead. It says, He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. We'll get there in a moment. Verse 13 again, he says his name is called the Word of God. That's interesting contrast when you look at the title that no one can know but himself. It reminds me of the prologue to John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus is the word of God, and he was there in the beginning. Now, what you have in your hand, hopefully you have a hard copy or electronic copy of the Bible, which is the written word of God that has been divinely inspired. Literally in 1 Timothy, God breathed. Not only did he inspire it in God the human, uh, God, the human authors, but he has miraculously preserved it through the course of time. But the ultimate communication of God, whom the scriptures reveal, is Christ, the Word of God incarnate. If you want to know what God thinks, and how He acts, how He loves, look at Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate revelation that we have of God at this point. It tells us in verse 14, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. That fine linen once again testifies to their purity as well as their justice. Now, this entourage is really not needed because as the word of God, he just speaks as enemies will fall. Who are these armies? Saints, angels, all behind him, riding on these white horses. And in verse 15, it tells us from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it, he may strike down the nations. Now bear with me. In chapter 1, Jesus sees one walking among the lampstands like the Son of Man with a robe reaching to his feet and a golden sash around his chest. And in Revelation chapter 1, the first part of verse 16, tells us in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So the sword he's talking about coming out of his mouth is not literally a sword coming out, but what he speaks happens. And can I just taste a rabbit for a second? I have a habit of doing that sometimes. When God created the world, it didn't happen with evolution. When God spoke it, it happened. Boom, there it was. And I believe in the little creation of the world in seven days. When God speaks, things happen. And Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us that the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the vision of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Ouch. If you're feeling any conviction right now, it's not me. That's the Word of God. That's the Holy Spirit. That is not me. And by the way, if you tell me I stepped on your toes, that's a little too low, because God's aiming for your heart. Because if He has your heart, everything else will follow. He doesn't want people doing a check-off theology. I want the church I gave. No, he wants your heart. And quite frankly, he deserves it. Now we come back to that wine press that I quoted earlier in verse 15, that he treads the wine press of the fierce, fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Now, the treading floor in the ancient wine press, there's a picture coming up of, the ancient wine, of an ancient wine press, was large enough for several people. You know the picture, if you would, please. There, should be, there it is. It might be a little hard to see all the writing, but you can see where the guys are kind of standing up on the top, and then the, the juice of the grapes would go into the, each vat. And they had a stone in between them so they could fill up one side and the other. So what was going on there? 
stomping the grapes like this, getting the juice out of it, put it in the vat, and they let it ferment a little bit. They put it in the wineskins, and they save it up, and they would drink it. But here we have the lamb treading the wine press of the fierce wrath of God. And it tells us that his robe is dipped in blood, as though he's stepping in the wine press, and the blood of his enemies are coming up on his robe. This is a different picture of Jesus that we never hear talked about very, very much. Just as the people walking in that rhyme press, their stones would get stained with the blood of the grapes, so Jesus' robe gets blamed, gets his robe stained with the blood of his enemies. And this imagery, by the way, is not uncommon for judgment in the Bible. Humanity, he is walking the wine press of humanity, exacting the just toll of judgment. Hence the description, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That scares me. That's a very different picture of Jesus than I remember hearing as a boy in Sunday school. But dearly beloved, this is Christ coming back. In verse 16, it tells us that on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the King of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 and following. He who is the blessed and only sovereign... The King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possess immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is a vivid contrast we see in the second coming of Christ as compared when he came the first time. You remember the story? He was born in a manger, in a trough, not in a palace, not surrounded by official dignitaries, but he was surrounded by shepherds who were considered the low end of the class of that time. Here he is riding a white horse and he entered Jerusalem. He rode in on a donkey. But he's coming back on a white horse, bringing judgment just as he promised in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Now you're curious who the sheep are and who the goats are. If you're one of his, you're his sheep. If not, you're a goat. He's going to separate. He's going to judge. When Jesus was on earth, he was abandoned by all his followers. And Mark chapter 14 verse 50 tells us quite easily that all of them left him and they fled. But when he comes again, he's not coming alone. All the armies which are in heaven are following him on white horses wearing clean linen, bright and clean. 
When Jesus came to earth, the first time he spoke gracious words. Luke chapter 4, verse 22. All were speaking well of him, Jesus, and were wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. But when he returns, he will not speak gracious words, but words of righteous judgment. Isaiah 11, chapter 11, verse 4. With righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with his rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Jesus will come to rule with a rod of iron, King of kings and Lord of lords. In the next week we'll see him coming, setting up his millennial kingdom for a thousand years. We'll see the demise of the false prophet and the dragon. And I'm jumping way ahead of myself. We will read about people whose name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be thrown in the lake of fire. That's what awaits us. And this time, with everything going on around me, I can't help but think time is drawing short. Enemies are surrounding Israel. She soon will probably have a conflict on two sides. This thing possibly will spin out of control. And I I would encourage you to go home and read your Bible because it's happening just like he said it would. Prophecy is being fulfilled right before our eyes. And I find myself torn. What I mean by that, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Be reunited with all my loved ones that have gone on before me. To see the one who took the nails from me. But my heart's also heavy. Because I have some dear friends. Dear loved ones that do not have a relationship with Christ. And it bothers me. It weighs heavy on my heart. Do you know anyone? Who needs Christ? Are you praying and interceding on behalf of them, of our nation, of our leaders, people over there in harm's way? Ladies and gentlemen, we have been given unprecedented freedom in this country. I got up this morning, took a shower, got dressed, and came here without any thought of being hauled off to a jail cell where I'd be persecuted and beaten from my faith. I still have freedom to proclaim the gospel of Christ, to move about. And it makes me very heavy-hearted to know that the country in which I live who has been so blessed by God himself now curses the very one who blessed them to begin with. How do you see Jesus? Do you see him as a wise and ethical mentor? Do you see him just as a meek and mild servant? 
Or do you see him as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? And if that is the case, what impact, what influence is he having on your life? See, the question, can one qualify for heaven by being good or doing good? You cannot believe that and at the same time hold to the case that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And there's another thing you have to come to terms with. If you believe, you can just be good to get to heaven. John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is the words of Jesus himself. You can't hold one or the other because both are opposing views. So I invite you this morning, if you've never given your life to Christ, do it today. Do it before it's everlasting too late. If there's something between you and Him, take care of it today. We call this an altar. As you can see, we don't have any uh, animal sacrifices going on because there's only one sacrifice made, one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. But we call this an altar. That's where we lay down everything we got. So here you go. Here's my life. Here's my resources. Because truth is, my life doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Him. My children who are here today do not belong to me. They belong to Him. I'm called to be a good steward of everything he's given me. From financial, to talents, and to time. And as we go into prayer, I'm, I'm going to do it just a little different this morning. I just want to be real quiet. As people bow their head and close their eyes, or you start, I just want you time to reflect about everything that's going on. And ask God to search your own heart. And be real and honest with Him this morning. Give you just a few moments of, of silence and then I'll lead us together in prayer together. Almighty God, we bow before you. You are holy. You're the Almighty. You are the beginning and the end. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are our all in all. You're the one that gives us life. Allows us even now to breathe oxygen into our lungs. You are the one who sends your spirit even now moving among us. Speaking to each one of us in our hearts and in our minds. You're the one who saves us. You're the one who sent your son. 
willingly to lay his life down to save us by shedding his blood on that cross so many years ago. You are the one who given us your word that we could read it and understand it. Once again, the gift of your Holy Spirit illuminating the scriptures for us. You are the one who has given us each other. Like-minded believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. With a tie that's much stronger and powerful than anything here on earth. That is the precious blood of your Son. Father, it's all you. Your message, your word, your salvation. You are all in all. And we come to you, crying out to you. Have mercy on us. Father, we need you. We need you every day, every hour. And we pray for our country and for our president, for all the leaders. We pray for those even now in harm's way, the killing that's going on. Father, we ask before your son comes again, would you please pour out your spirit? We have another great awakening like you've done before. That more would come to a saving knowledge of your son. And Father, may that begin with each one of us as we invite you in to search us and try us to see if there is any wicked way in us. We may confess and repent. Father, we desire to be your instruments in your hands. To be your light shining in the darkness. To be your beacon of hope proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Continue to move among us. Continue to speak to us, O oh God, because we desperately need to hear from you. We pray for all this in the precious name of your Son, our Savior, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And we pray that your will will be done. In Christ's name we pray. Would you stand with us?